Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. I am your guest co-host, right? Yeah, sounds about right. Jennifer Neely. And I am the interviewee in this Friday follow-up episode. We are following up on Season 6, Episode 29, where I interviewed Allie Sweeney. And we are in a hotel room, and you probably heard some motorcycles go by. So we're, yes. we're not in a soundproof studio. Not at all. Uh, so Jennifer is... One of our Patreon supporters who is in the reward level where she gets to host a Friday follow-up episode. And I encourage you all to do the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, the timing just worked out that as I was happened to be coming back to L.A. to work for a couple of days, she asked me to interview for her students right after we had an episode that was an interview with Allison Sweeney that didn't generate a lot of listener questions. Well, it's, it's generating a little bit now, which unfortunately we won't get to, but... I teach an influencer marketing class at UC San Diego Extension, and I thought this was an awesome opportunity to have my students ask some questions of Bob, because we're really looking at the business of influencer marketing, and Bob's show, and following it as long as I have, has really been about the influence of you, the listener, on getting justice for people that are wrongly convicted, and even better, hopefully, justice for those that have passed. So not forgetting those victims out there and getting them true justice, because obviously having someone wrongly convicted isn't what they would want, I'm sure. Exactly. So let's go ahead and let's get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. Hundredth cappuccino by eight, two hundredth customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our stay connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. 
Sky Fiber only 30 second 4G activation or one off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only. T's and C's apply. All right. So, for those who may not be familiar with the origin story of the Truth and Justice podcast, I believe it has something to do with firefighters someplace in Michigan getting together to let off some steam, the serial podcast, and an early retirement from firefighting and or fire investigations. How's that all fit together, Bob? And did I get anything wrong? Uh, that's that's pretty much the entire story, I think. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's not. Yeah, so I was a firefighter. Um, I became a firefighter in, uh, shoot, when was it? 2000 uh, is when I started my career as a firefighter. And, and did you have a career before that? I did. I did construction work. I, I ran my own construction company. So people ask this week, did you have any kind of other certifications like a PI license or anything that would have hinted towards this career in fire investigations. In fire investigations? Or any kind of investigations. But obviously fire investigations led you to right. other so, types of so investigations. So I, I was certified to do fire investigations. Part of being a firefighter is at least for me, and that's kind of why I ended up being the chief at a very young age, is a continuing education. There's a lot more to firefighting than people think. Um, there's a lot of very complicated science involved in the work that we do. And so fire investigation was part of that training throughout the years. Uh, as far as being a private investigator or doing the work I do now, the arson investigation training kind of translates to it. But I'm most definitely the most underqualified person that has ever done it. <laughs> I, have, I have no qualifications to do what I'm doing other than just I just do it. But you take in a lot like a sponge. You know, you've you've talked about Jim Clemente. He's been on the show. Jim Fitzgerald, you know, the list goes on of the kinds of people that have been on the show, let alone whomever you're speaking to behind the scenes. So would you say that there's sort of an unofficial level of training that you've kind of put yourself through and continue to, to feel like you can continue these investigations at the level you want to? Constantly. So, you know, it's with everything. When I was a firefighter, when I was doing construction, when I decided I want to build a website or when I decided I want to make a podcast, uh, I'm just the type of person that I like. I like learning, mm -hmm. and I like to self teach a lot. You know, even through college and stuff, I was, you know, I was a guy that would skip calculus class and just go back to my room and just read the book and do the work because my calculus instructor had a tick that bothered me. That you know, it was distracting. Uh, so yeah, I have. If you go in my studio in my office, I have tons of books on blood spatter, and I have you know Werner Spitz book on. Um, on uh, medical legal evaluation of death and everything from crime scene staging to the read technique. And I, and I learned and, le and then I learn from people that I work with as much as I can. I just try to take in whatever anyone is going to be able to give me. Like Jim Clemente was taught me tons and tons and tons and Laura Richards and Jim Fitzgerald and Jim Trainum and you know, all these people that I've spoken to. So it's, it's a constant, I used to say, even because I was an instructor in the fire service, uh, and that was my other business was fire seminars before I oh, did interesting. this. That when I would teach a class, I, I I taught for the state and I taught state certification classes. And then as I progressed through my career, I started creating my own courses. And, you know, when they were done, they would get a certificate because firefighters love certificates. And if you firefighters out there know that we love our certificates. <laughs> but mine didn't have the state of Michigan uh, seal on. It had the what is now the NBI Phoenix. It had the fire seminars Phoenix. That's always been kind of my my logo, my thing. And they'd be like, well, what can we do with the certification? I'm like, I don't care what you do with the certification. Would you rather be certified or qualified? I'm going to teach you how to be qualified. And so I've kind of taken that that same mindset into what I do now. It's like I'm constantly trying. I don't have a degree in criminology or 
criminal justice or a PI license. I don't have all these certificates, but I'm trying to become more and more qualified by trying to learn from these experts. Understood. I know from my own experience when I worked in TV news, I remember we got our first chopper in a local market and there were arson investigators that could tell whether the building, they thought it was an explosion at first and that was how it was being reported. And actually the trajectory of the reporting changed because of that helicopter and they could see that it was an implosion. Uh-huh. So the building fell in on itself. And there it right. was some tips from firefighters who were investigators mm-hmm. that made that difference, which is interesting because it's a visual, it's very visual medium. And we think mm-hmm. about social media, which is part of what my students and I talk about, what they're learning about. So how did you make the jump between fire service and the podcast that you started out with. Maybe talk a little bit about that because I'm not even sure if people knew you had a podcast with your local fire guys, right? And Mike was one of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm, I did. Yeah. So we had this idea. It's it's actually a it's either a terrible or a really funny story, but it all started with my mother-in-law. Well, it started before that. For years so the way the fire fire service, at least the fire departments I worked at, we worked 24 hour shifts. And shift change for us was at 8 a.m. And so what would happen was the, you know, our crew would be getting off at eight, the other crew. And sometimes that crew was just one, depending what station we're at, it might be one person or two people. I've worked at station with stations with nine people, but you know, about a half hour before shift change, the other shift would come in and then we would sit around the table and we would drink coffee and we would shoot the shit and we would, you know, and, and then we would stay over a little bit. That was kind of our brief debrief period, but the conversation, there's a certain type of personality that's drawn into being into the fire service. And we would sit around and have these conversations and they were just, they were hysterical. I always thought they were, it's like, I I used to think, you know, uh, you know, you work a 30 year life, right? So coming in and out there, 200 days a year, we sit in here and we have new content that is interesting and hilarious every single day, just by talking, we should record this. And then years go by and then I start listening to podcasts. I'm like, what is this podcast thing? And then, and then we used to joke around and say, we should, we should put microphones in here and make a podcast about this. And then you did. Right. Well, none of us at that point knew what a podcast was, but we knew that we and wanted one. about what year was this? I mean, at that point, this probably all started in two, that one of the conversations like that about recording it started in 2005, 2006. And okay. then 2014, Christmas of 2014, my mother-in-law. So remember, I'm a grown-ass man, um, as I start to tell this story, but my mother-in-law. Allegedly. Right. <laughs> She um she's very much into Christmas, but I always say, you know, I just tell my wife that, you know, our our families do Christmas very differently. Uh and I do. Like for me, it's all about this big surprise. And I try to, you know, it where in their family, it, it feels to me because of the way I was raised more like a business transaction. Like I have a budget on as far as how much <laughs> about how much I'm gonna spend for gifts on each individual. How dare you person. go over a dollar? Yeah. It's not even over dollars, she's extremely generous. But it's this is my budget. And so that year she kept, what do you want for Christmas? I'm like, I don't need anything for Christmas. Like, just get stuff for the kids. I don't need anything. Well, and and apparently her budget for me was $200. And so since I wouldn't tell her what I wanted, she gave me, my mother-in-law gave me, grown man, $200 and told me, you're going to spend that on something for you. And I'm like, what am I going to do with $200? And then I'm sitting at at the firehouse one night and we were having this conversation again about you know, recording our conversations. I started looking up like what's a podcast and blah, 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 and how to make a podcast. And then I end up on Amazon and there's like a podcast starter kit that looks nothing like all of this Very stuff different. that we have put together now. But it was it was like a hundred bucks for a little mixer and a couple of microphones. 
And it's like, all you need to do is plug it in your computer and you can make a podcast. So I was just like, well, I got the money from my mother-in-law. I guess I'll just, let's try this. Let's make a podcast. And I, I started, by that time, I had moved on. I'd taken the chief job in another department. I had hired Mike um, Bussing, our our producer. Very handsome. Handsome man. Very pretty. Mike's a very pretty guy. <laughs> <laughs> Relentless. Before the mics got turned on, she called him pretty. Um, but yeah, so we- He says allegedly. <laughs> But yeah, so we started talking about doing it, and I was like, well, there's four, there's spots for four mics here. We should do like three of us and a guest every week or something. And so Mike jumped in, and then uh, one of uh, Ryan Luker, who was one of our other firefighters who became Research Ryan, and we, we decided one day, let's next set. Research I, Ryan. That's what we call him, Research Ryan, uh, because every time we need to look, because it was just organic conversation. Did you ever listen to Off Duty? I'm sorry. This is reminding me too much of a TV show in the UK. If you guys, anyone who knows Alan Partridge, he's back and Sidekick Simon is on the show. It's on BBC One or Two. But is there a Research Ryan? No, but there's a Sidekick Simon. And it just reminds me of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And they're very sarcastic. And that, yeah, that was I'm, us. Be, I'm being sarcastic about him. But anyway. <laughs> but yeah, so we, we decided just one Saturday, I, I watched YouTube videos on what software to buy or to download and how to make a podcast. And we said, just just come over Saturday morning. Let's make a podcast. And this is Christmas. So that that was 2013. Our, we recorded. I, I recorded my very first ever podcast on Valentine's Day in 2014. 15. Well, that's after Serial. Yes. So I had listened to Serial already. That's when I started to get into podcast. Okay, was, so 2014 Serial comes out. Mm-hmm. And, and, and into I, podcasting. And I had listened to podcasts before that. I was listening to um, Jimmy Pardo's Never Not Funny, which I still listen to. It's one of my favorites. And so I kind of adapted that style into what we then call, you know, we what do we call this thing? So we Smart-ass firefighters. No. We went with Off-Duty, the Off-Duty which podcast. Very good. It was Off-Duty Firemen. And we sat down and to be honest, our, our first episode, I thought it was, for three guys didn't know what we were doing, it was pretty good. And and we started going, then we started having guests in, and we started doing it every week, and it was a lot of fun, and we really enjoyed it. And the wife made cameos. Uh, eventually, yeah, yes. occasionally, Becky would come in and make cameos, uh, especially if we videoed stuff, because we later, like, it evolved. So it was very, just like Truth and Justice, very audience interactive. Right. We did, we did call-ins. We had mail calls, so listeners would send us like gag gifts, and we'd open up mail call every week. I think you need to bring that one back. Yeah, we we're, we're working on it. We're trying to bring it back. Uh, the, the issue we hit a we hit a part where we just decided that we didn't. It got a little crude sometimes, and um, there there got to be a point where there was a concern. Mike is the adult in the room always, and he's like, you know, what did they take? Because so the youngest is the adult. Absolutely, yeah. Be, and what it was is Makes so. Sense. We had, because when we first started, we were government employees, so we all had characters. So I wasn't Bob Ruff. I was chief, and Mike wasn't Mike. He was Proby. For some reason, Ryan was still Research Ryan, but no Proby last name. Proby is very subject- suggestive, though, too. Mm-hmm. So lots of humor, lots of sharing stories, your characters. Right. But podcast, you know, serials in the back of your mind – and serial ends up being what kind of makes your name in podcasting originally, no? Yeah, absolutely. So off duty was just for fun. I, it was only ever supposed to be for fun. And then um, one day I was obsessed with serial, not the podcast so much, the case. Like I listened to the podcast, it was amazing, well produced. Are you listening to serial now? Out of curiosity, if you had time, let's say, would you listen? To, have you listened to any of the new episodes? I did. I listened to season two. I gave up on it. Didn't like it. Season three, I thought was fantastic. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I really liked season three. Because I, I think that's where Sarah Koenig's chops are. Like every, She did cereal and everybody thought... Oh, she's this true crime lady, but that's not what Serial was about. It was, it's more about, to me, it's more about Sarah Koenig's journeys and whatever she's investigating. And, uh, and it's a serial. It's, it's, it's the idea of making the serialized story. Right. And then people are like, you know, couldn't, she's not doing true crime the way she did Denon Syed. And is she going to solve it? Okay. Mm. It's like that was never, I don't think what, what her, I don't know what she thinks, but I, I never think, I never thought that that was her intention. Um, but, but you were drawn in by the case in 2014. Right. And at some point, you decided that you were going to kind of get involved. So can you talk about that evolution a little bit? Because you're still a firefighter at this point. Right. You're doing the off-duty podcast, mm-hmm. which is not at all around true crime. Nothing at all. But then you evolve into kind of investigating on the side. I'm, I'm like taking notes. And, I, and again, the podcast is over. But I would listen to it again because I'm like, I'm like well, this doesn't add, add up and this doesn't make sense. How many and times I, do you think you listen to it? All the way through, probably uh, several times. I don't know, but, but most. So I know how much her numbers are inflated. Just, just kidding. Right? Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's because of me. Yeah. Yes, Bob Ruff's fault. Forty-six downloads, and the rest of them were all me. <laughs> but no, it was it was my re-listening was like as as an investigator, just for I mean, it was just for fun. But it was like I was obsessed. So I'm like, I, I would be thinking about, well, why did Jen say this or this or this? And I'd go back to the podcast and listen again and right. take notes. I'm like, what did she say? And this doesn't add up. And then everybody I knew was tired of talking about it. And one day my little, at the time, four-year-old Parker was home sick, yep. sit, sitting on the couch with him. He's upstairs sleeping. I can't sit still. I don't do that. I have to be doing something at all times. Are you part Portuguese or? No, I am not. <laughs> is, that a, is that a Portuguese trait? We have to be working at all times. I don't know. It's like a drop of blood. You get anxiety and working a lot as traits. Anyway, right. just well, that's, so you know. I'm a little bit of that. Maybe it's the Scottish in me. Maybe. Maybe I don't know. Um, but yeah, so I, he, he's, he's upstairs sleeping and I'm bored and I'm kind of going through my nerdy serial notes. And I was just thinking, I still, we had just recorded an off duty. So my recording equipment was still set up downstairs. I'm like, Uh-oh. I'm like, I should make like a podcast where people can talk about the case. That'd be kind of cool. Cause there was, cause I was listening to other podcasts about serial and undisclosed. It just started. And that's why the, the name serial dynasty, cause there was like this dynasty of all these podcasts, mm. right? There was like 15 of them. There was like five or six that I liked. I was like, well, and I quick like wrote down this little outline. I, I while I'm sitting there on my laptop, I like bought the GoDaddy. Uh, I went to GoDaddy and bought the domain name. I was, and that I also helped me land on Serial Dynasty. And I was like, well, I'm gonna go down and, and if uh, you've listened to my first episode, it's me and a microphone going, hey, here's uh, I got this idea. You guys listen to Undisclosed, which was going on at the time, mm-hmm. and whatever you think about the case, email me and your thoughts and theories, and next week I'll talk about them, and we'll just keep doing that, like a book club. Right, and it makes you feel slightly less crazy that someone else is as 
obsessed with the case as you are. Yeah. And at that time, there were other people, like you said, covering it, but maybe not with the same exact background as you. And you definitely were opening it up. I think of everybody, you probably were asking, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that the mm -hmm. most? So the crowdsourcing piece comes in. But, right. but before we get to that, there's a really critical piece that I feel like maybe listeners, even of the Truth and Justice podcast, don't know about what you found out about the case, the Adnan Syed case. You, didn't you find a critical piece of, I'm not even sure if it's information that can be used in court, but you dug up some information, which probably helped you learn a lot about the criminal justice system along the way. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing has been in, in evolution for me in learning how things work. But yeah, I, what happened was it turned, it went from a fan show to, I was like, well, why isn't some, one of these podcasts needs to try to track down, you know, neighbor boy and, mm. and why don't we get Jim, Jim train him on and, and, and so I, I kind of started making this shift where I started reaching out to people mm -hmm. and then started actively investigating things and then having listeners help me instead of just telling me your theories, like help me figure things out, help me track down people. And as, as it just kind of snowballed and it ended up with discovering that Don Hayes' boyfriend, we knew that his mother was the, uh, the manager at one of the lens crafters. But he normally worked at another one. So, like, his alibi was rock solid because the manager at the other one, who wasn't his mom, confirmed his alibi. But then we had Susan Simpson had noticed that there, the, the employee ID number on his time cards, there was like one that showed he wasn't working the day Hay was killed or went missing. Mm -hmm. And then, and then it's kind of like, oh, yeah, wait, here's another one that says he was working at the other store, but the employee ID number is different. Susan Simpson noticed that. And that's she's from the Undisclosed podcast, right? Yeah, and so I started looking a little deeper into that, and finally was like, "Well, fuck it." One day, I I, I called the lens crafters and then figured out who their their boss. That, that particular lens crafter doesn't exist anymore, but there's another one around the corner, and the same one, the same woman who took over managing that lens crafters when Don's mom left manages the new one. She tells me if you want to know anything, you're gonna have to call corporate, call Luxottica. Mm. So I did. And long story short, at the end of the day, we determined that the 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 timesheet, the time card that said he was working when Hay went missing, was falsified. It was not. It was. It was not legit. It was. It was entered in at a later date after Hay was missing, but before she was found dead. The time card had been manipulated. But then it was like, well, why did this other manager vouch for him? Vouch for him? Why would she do that? And and it doesn't make sense. And the way they described to me. I talked to other managers from LensCrafters. Like, sure. no, she shouldn't have been able to see that. I don't know how it works. A little more digging, a little more digging, background checks. And I start seeing intersecting addresses. And again, another long story short, the other manager is Don's mother's partner. And she's essentially his stepmom. In step life, yeah. Yeah, her life partner. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we, didn't, we didn't know that his mom was lesbian and she had this part. We didn't know any of that right. after she got divorced by his husband. So now all of a sudden, everything starts to make sense. So you shift from being someone who's shooting the shit about a podcast, mm -hmm. talking with other people, to almost a, a reporter, then sort of a an investigator taking an active mm -hmm. role. Now, where does that sort of evidence, I guess, I mean, were you able to produce a piece of evidence that Rabia and the team that are helping with Adnan's case today in any concrete way? Yeah, well, the thing is, where his case is at an appeal right now, it doesn't matter. Like, like the the court is limited in the appeals that we're waiting for right now, limited to the scope of what was presented in his habeas writ. 
if his conviction is overturned, well, it has been overturned, mm-hmm. but if the higher court up- upholds that, then the state has the option to either drop the charges, try him again, offer him an Alfred plea, or just let it sit there forever, which oftentimes And is Baltimore's holding on. They, they're keeping him in. They won't let him out on bail. So right. what's interesting is it seems like that was a really teachable moment just to even understand. You found out what feels like a critical part of the investigation, but it's not really applicable to the court case. So that in and of itself seems like it might have been a turning point in terms of your learning curve about how does right. an investigation work depending on where the case is? Because that's that's a lot to unpack. How did right. you start to get your head around how does our criminal justice system work? Because I, I know you've talked about j- your jury duty experience mm-hmm. even recently, but I think a lot of people don't know. There's a lot of mystery around where things are, and just finding the truth isn't enough. Right. It takes a lot of time. It, 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 I'm still learning. Um, that was So, I mean, I ended up you know, sitting in Justin Brown's office strategizing because this information will come out one way or another. If if Anand's retried or if he's not as convicted to overturn, it's all relevant towards the new investigation. But as to who really is responsible for her. Exactly. Hey, which, Heyman Lee's death. Which yes. ultimately is my, with in any of my cases, is the most important thing to me is to figure out to get justice for the victims. And one of the reasons that I and I'm sure many other listeners love your approach. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, but but the learning, I guess the biggest learning curve I had was so when I decided, listeners kind of decided for me that I need to keep going. We I rebranded from Serial Dynasty to Truth and Justice because we weren't just doing the serial case anymore. Um, I had people flooding me with emails wanting me to look at new cases, help family members and things. And I took on Kenny Snow's case. It was a super compelling story. Looked like he was probably innocent. And we can track it down. And I was just gung-ho, ready to go. And when I got into the case, I, I didn't understand the law. You know, I didn't understand how it doesn't necessarily always matter if you can prove someone's innocent. Because if you have to prove they're innocent in a certain way in order to, to, to win an actual innocence exoneration, you have to literally dismantle every single element of the state's case. If anything stands up still, then they're still guilty. We saw that with Karen Max Cook's case. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they couldn't disprove that he didn't tell a sheriff in the elevator on his way down to the trial that he confessed. There's no way to disprove that. Mm-hmm. And so it still stands, and he couldn't get his actual innocence, which is bullshit as far as I'm concerned. But um, And Kenny had pled guilty. There was just all these. So I was learning a lot. And then, you know, Kenny led to Ed Eights, and then we worked with Ed Eights all the way to the point where he got out of prison uh, and we're still working on his case uh, through, you know, trying to get him an actual innocence exoneration. And right. I think we're going to get there. And I think we're going to catch the person who actually killed Elnora Griffin. But that was a big jump for me because, uh, you know, we, we the Innocence Project of Texas took the case. Allison Clayton gets assigned to it. Her and I start working together. And then now I'm, for the first time, now I'm working hand in hand with an attorney who does post-conviction work. So... She's teaching me, and, and, and Allison's just like Jim Clemente or Jim Trainum or a lot of Jims, Jim Fitzgerald. <laughs> um, but 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 she's another one of those resources. So I love when that, Laura Richards says on the RCP podcast, uh, Jim C. And Jim C. Jim C. Fitz and Jim C. Right. Yes, Fitz and Jim C. But Allison's one of those resources. You know, she's been incredible. She's taught me a lot um, about the law mm-hmm. as we move forward, and, and still to this day, you know, the, I'm working on Sandra Melgar's case. And questions, I'll have questions that come up, and and Allison still, I mean, she's a friend, 
And of course, we still have stuff going on with Ed and Jesse Eldridge's case. Yes, uh, let's not forget Jesse Eldridge. Mm-hmm. Um, so I the, loved the theme song during Jesse Eldridge. I may be the only listener who ever wrote or called in and said, you've got to bring back that title tune. Which one was that? That was the, you know. This you, is Truth and Justice. Yes, right. where, you know, you make, it, it makes it very clear that you being involved, it's like a rallying cry. It made me, I remember driving to Disneyland with my family and just being, feeling so excited to be it, part of the podcast. Right. Just by listening. And that and was like, the point, but like some, like some, everybody either loved that or they hated it. It's amazing. And, and it was like, we'd get, cause Shane, cause you know, that's all Shane Yoder's handiwork. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it was. Love Yoder. Yoder's the man. Who, uh, yes. Love him. So, so let's talk about, so you made a shift during this whole process, Serial Dynasty to Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff to being an entrepreneur. You had to make a pretty critical decision at some point because these investigations are time consuming. Mm-hmm. So how did you go from being a fire chief and fire investigator to being a full-time podcaster? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, I was doing the, as I mentioned, the podcast was uh, just a hobby mm-hmm. and loved my job. As I've been a firefighter for that point for 15 years. How did the other firefighters feel about you ditching off duty, by the way? Uh, well, that didn't happen until like last Because you were doing it. We did, doing both. we did 127 episodes. We just stopped doing off duty less than a year ago. Yeah. Um, and we're going to come back to it. But I was, I was doing both. It was a hobby. And then there was, it was like a perfect storm. Mm. Um, and, and, and my audience, I, your students don't know this, but my audience have heard the story. So the very short version of it is an election occurred of my bosses, the politicians, mm-hmm. uh, as the chief, and they sucked. Those people, I mean, the job just sucked the department. They're just, they were just siphoning money, not letting me get the things I needed for the guys. They were just, it, it was just, it was just a nightmare. It sucked. The treasurer got arrested for embezzlement. Oh boy. Not from our department, but from his, his full time job at the senior center. Sure. And then I found out he was, then I did a forensic accounting of our books and found out after he was gone and found out that he was like laundering money kind of through our oh. department. Anyway, it was just an absolute shit show, and it got to be a point where I was just – I was miserable with the people. You know, I had people that wanted my job, that I had beaten out for the job, mm-hmm. that were now on the board as my bosses. Oh, boy. And it was just – it was, anyway, it, long story short, the, the job started to really suck. At the same time, the podcast was getting traction. And not so much the podcast, but just it was very rewarding. 
as as we're like learning new things and and discover things like the time card and mm-hmm. uh, people are wanting help and and all these people and I'm always looking for that you know that bright spot in a dark world kind of sure. cliche thing and it was like this was it you know there's at that point I was like there's a hundred thousand people that are all like I want to help for and there are people that might charge a thousand dollars an hour for their services whatever their profession is. Mm-hmm. They were like, hey, I'll help you. for. I, I just want to contribute. I'll do whatever. I'll transcribe mm-hmm. your podcast for you. It's I'll- a bill in Texas that's like done so much work on he, – he's an engineer. Oh, Don McElhinney? Don, yes. Yeah. Oh, in the Jesse Eldridge case. It, yep. Oh, my gosh. That was amazing. Don and Kathy. So Kathy was a longtime listener um, of both Truth and Justice and Off Duty. Love you both. I met Don when Kathy came up from Texas to be a guest on Off Duty, and Don came with Doug, as I called him. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> inside joke, uh, but but we got to know each other and 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 we really kind of hit it off. And then he started actually listening to Truth and Justice, and he's been a huge contributor. And so was Kathy, of course. So that started with Off Duty. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Never I th- knew I, that. I think Kathy got to Off Duty from Truth and Justice. Then Don followed along. Followed the other along. Way. It literally was just driving with her. So when you mentioned the hundred thousand, so obviously in influencer marketing, we're very much looking at numbers in social media. Was part of your decision with that perfect storm of deciding to leave firefighting as a profession, and you haven't finished that story, so I'll let you finish it as as I ask this question, was part of it feeling like you had enough people kind of along the ride with you that maybe gave you a feeling of, yeah, I'm doing the right thing, or maybe gave you some sort of validation that, or or did you feel like the cases in and of themselves were enough? All the people and the and the cases th- that was enough for me to feel fulfilled. But I have a wife and four kids, so fulfillment doesn't put food on the table. Mm. And uh, so, really, the the perfect storm was life sucks at work. I was I and I was actively for the first time in fifteen years looking for a new. I I was um I had submitted my resume into a a frozen food packaging company for a CFO position because I have a background in accountancy and business. That's why I was fire chief. I mean, to that point, like I was ready to go work in an office at a frozen food place to get the hell away from that fire department, which was horrible. At that same time, the audience is growing and then mid-roll advertisement mm. reaches out to me and says, hey, we'd like to sell ads on your podcast. So what size did your platform, I mean, what size audience did you have to have for them to come to you? Uh, it needed to be over 50,000, I think, is mm-hmm. at the time. So th- that world's changed because the the analytics. Mm-hmm. Very different now. Model has changed. So this was in 2015 or 16? 2015. 2015, you had to have 50,000 subscribers probably on iTunes. No, nobody knows how many subscribers you have on iTunes. So the way podcasts work is you post them to your host site, one place. And so then this is it's uh, an RSS feed that then connects to iTunes and everything else. Right, right, right. I'm trying to remember. You guys are Audio Boom or at that time. At that time, at that time, we were Podomatic actually. Oh wow. Um, and then we had it was right at that time we were switching from Podomatic to Audio Boom because we were breaking Podomatic because that's a free platform that's mm-hmm. made for much smaller shows. And mm-hmm. they actually emailed me because uh, you're allowed a total of like four terabytes of bandwidth per month. Oh and boy. And we were getting like eight, nine terabytes per episode for a month and they said we were like every sunday we were like crashing their servers because everybody would download it all at once and they just they weren't set up for that so anyway then we switched to audio boom but midroll reaches out to us i had reached out to midroll at one point um earlier like in the summer when we were on like 10 15 20 000. and maybe for those that don't know maybe explain a little bit about what midroll is so midroll is an advertising agency and this business has evolved since then but mm-hmm. at the time they were kind of the only dog in the market that was 
Um, and so, th- so they are connected to a bunch of advertisers like stamps.com and ZipRecruiter. And, and they sort of bring them to you. Yeah. They, yeah. What they, they do is you. they negotiate deals with them to sell them on our show. And mm-hmm. then they would tell us, okay, we've sold these spots for these advertisers. And, you know, they take like a 30% commission for doing that. But, you know, the, the upside is you just every week you go into your, your, your inventory and say, okay, we got these four ads to do this week. And this is how much money we're going to make. And we go in and we do them. And that was it. So I went to, I reached out to them when we got around 10, 20,000. I was like, man, we should be, every podcast I listen to has advertisements on it. Why aren't, why aren't I doing any advertisements? And I called and they're like, oh, no, we usually don't. Unless you're up to like 50,000, we're not interested. I'm like, okay. So then I started reaching out to people. And that's how I ended up with Sean T, and who's now a very good friend of mine. But he was a listener. He was always commenting on Twitter and emailing me and stuff. And it was just, very active and i didn't really know who he was my he, my wife loved him still loves him but um <laughs> it was like he was like her, her favorite you know he was it was his workout programs were that she used where she lost all the weight that got her into her beach body coaching business now yeah and so i just one day i was on a whim i was he had messaged me about something about the case and i was like hey i'm, I'm looking for sponsors do you have anything would you have any interest in sponsoring the podcast you know, buying ads for anything. And he's like, actually, yeah, I've got a new project. I'm, I'm about to launch my own podcast and size as workout was about to come out. And he's like, well, let's talk. And so we got on the phone and we talked and Sean T was my very first sponsor and, and he bought, but it was a, like, that was a pain in the ass to go through all that. It's so individual. Negotiate the deals and make the contracts and set up the payments and do the copy. And that was just for one advertiser. And then things just really started I, I, I still say this. I was actually just talking to her on the way here um, today. But Rabia Chowdhury really, I feel like, made my career. Like the, the podcast got popular quick, but it was Rabia who had a huge social media following, especially when Undisclosed came out, that really liked what I was doing. And we really kind of connected and we were working to an investigation. And she really started pushing and tweeting and mm-hmm. and talked about me on Undisclosed. And she's the person who brought Sarah Koenig, the host of Serial, the Anand Syed case, right? For those that don't know, so she's been a huge force for his exoneration, but also Absolutely. just the, the, you know, the the failings of the criminal justice system. And from her perspective, it's just been so interesting. So she had a huge social media following, right? And was talking about you, and so that really led to you getting at the advertising that kind of helped this perfect storm happen, where you were able well, to increase the listenership, right? And yeah, because. The, the thing is, there's millions and millions. I don't know the, what the n- number is, but there there are probably 20 million podcasts out there, and a lot of them are really good. And they're just you know the tricky part. We have a lot of in our studio. We have a lot of good shows out of NBI Studios. You know, disgruntled moms and made us and hustling and heels and the root note that are all NBI shows. But it's just so hard to get. There's so much content out there to get ears on it, right? To realize that it's good. And, and Rabia, I felt like I was putting out good content and Rabia, and it was no, nothing, no discussion between us. She just did it. Sure. But, but she got people to listen and then it just really snowballed. And then mid-roll advertising agency then calls me and says, we want to sell ads on your podcast. And I agreed to it. I signed the contract, everything. I'm like, man, this would be awesome. I got my my career and then this would be like extra money. Mm -hmm. And at the time, they um, they said, okay, we sold your first advertiser. It was for the next year, for 2016. Stamps.com just bought ads for the entire year. And I was looking at the number. I'm like, that's 
that's uh, that that's almost as much as I make at the fire department. Just and that. that's for your cut. Yeah, yeah. Your cut was almost as much as you were making for in at terms of salary department. at the fire department, right? With one advertiser, with fifty thousand subscribers at that point. Well, by the time we signed the deal, it was up to one hundred thousand, so it was right. growing quick. So we're selling at a very high rate. And and though and all those numbers have shifted since then. Absolutely. Know, yeah. But but back then. But just to give people some context, back in 2014, mm-hmm. tw- or sorry, 2015, right? When all of this took place, that's really what what an influencer was. So kind right. of to give uh, my students a you know a sense of where podcasting fits in with everything and what the numbers were at that time. Obviously, you know, market share has changed a lot because, like you said, there's mm-hmm. just been an explosion in podcasting right. since then. So it's very different. So can you talk a little bit about how your business model has changed as a podcast? It's changed quite a bit in the fact that back then it was just you. It was just me. I didn't have much overhead. I, I had no overhead, really. And for those that don't know, you retired from the fire service. That became an opportunity too. So yeah, that's what led. So it was literally when I say the perfect storm, I'm I'm like having anxiety attacks, which I've never had before in oh, my wow. life. When I had to go to board meetings, and then as I'm getting ready to go to one, they send me like, "Hey, we just sold your first advertiser. You got this much." And I'm looking at the number. I'm like, "That's the number. It's the same number. Like I can, if they never sell another ad, I can walk away from this and do that." And make the same living for so my family. So almost like a sign, if you believe in them. Right. I ran it by my wife, who was awesome about it. And she said, I, I trust you. I have faith that whatever happens, that we're going to be all right. I know that you're going to make sure everything's all right. Go Becky. Yeah. She's she's a rock star. And she, because I mean, I was literally like a bubbling mess. In t- like I was so done that those those politicians ruined the career that I loved so yeah. much. But so I, I went to the meeting and... And made my decision and turned in my resignation. I say retired. I quit, but I was there long enough that I'm. You were invested. able to draw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's technically an early retirement, but I just basically told them to take their job and shove it. Is what I did. <laughs> so now the podcast is your full time job, right? And you are now an entrepreneur for mm-hmm. the second time, right? So you had done your courses. I've had a lot of entrepreneurships along the way. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Well, I mean. I started off doing construction. I worked for a construct, uh, construction company and then decided to branch off and do it on my own. I'm talking when I'm 18, 19 years old. So you're like kind of college. naturally entrepreneurial. Yeah. And little things that would come up along the way. I mean, no one's no one except for anybody that played a lot of poker in 2005 when it was really hot. I used to make poker chips. I bought an, an embossing machine where I could like make – everybody had a poker room in their basement back then. Wow. And I bought a little machine. Who and knew? I, there was a call for that. That's right. amazing. I, and it was because I was looking for them. I wanted some custom ones for my little poker room and no, I couldn't find them anywhere. So I bought a machine to make them myself and then I sold them on the internet. And then fire seminars was – you know I, I taught for the state and then I, I started teaching my own classes and I ended up traveling around the country and teaching my own seminars. Um. God, I don't even remember all the little business ventures I've had. I've never had one that wasn't successful to some extent. I was just going to ask you because sometimes we learn the most from our failures. So it's going to, or what we consider failure or well, setbacks. Well, I've always been cautious. I've always been very, with money, I've always been very frugal. And I, I, mm-hmm. I mean, frugal is not the right word. I want to say that I've always been smart with my money and the fact that I don't ever, I don't borrow money. So I don't over it. So I was, you know, when I bought that mach- that machine, I didn't buy the machine until I could afford to buy the machine with cash. I, I share that feeling, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, there was never any – I was never leveraged. Mm-hmm. So so a failure, like, if oh, not a lot of people are buying these, I don't want to do it anymore, 
I already made my money back from my my investment and I'm moving on. Mm-hmm. So I, I never – and same thing with the podcast. So it starts with me and a little kit. And as I started making a little more money, I started – I start buying a little better equipment, make it sound better. And then, you know, as the business model changes, I mean, the production model changed too. Right. Um, but the business model, at some point, things are going really well. And now we're, we're selling out every advertise, you know, three, four ads for every episode. And that was pretty good money. There's more money than I had ever seen. Anybody that's living out here would be chump change for it. But if you live in Bridgman, Michigan, you're going to Sizzler. You know? <laughs> I remember Sizzler. <laughs> right. But um, but so then I started looking like what I want to do with this. Do I want to keep doing what I'm doing the way that I'm doing it uh-huh. and pay myself more? Or, you know, what what how can I how can I do the job better? And you know, it's of of course some better equipment and I could do more work. So so I use some of the money. I started traveling, actually physically going boots on the ground and investigating mm. these these cases which case started did you start with boots on because i feel like you did that Kenny's. in adnan's case even no i never did with that you went case. at least to the courthouse I yeah i did that. Go to, yeah i did that and it was kenny snow's the first one because i had left the fire department so now i had free time right and i could go but then it turned into it's like well i i need to go i kind of it's kind of back to my roots what i'm doing now except for i have mike back at home where i'm like in hotel rooms making podcasts for mike that right? handsome guy that very pretty guy mike uh-huh. uh but you know i'm i'm editing and I'm doing all, all all the different elements of making a podcast and it's just it's just a ton of work and I, I could But rewarding. Rewarding. But it was like I couldn't do like I needed to go knock on more doors, but I couldn't because I had to go edit a podcast so that I could put the content out and get the advertisements in to make the money to pay for the trip to go do you know so it was just So as a business decision, you at some point decide that you're going to hire someone to help you and it turns out to be the pretty mic. Mike. Right. <laughs> we said that at the same time. Yeah. Handsome Mike. And so uh, Mike Bussing, for mm-hmm. those that, that don't know who he is, um, for my students who may not know, at what point did he decide to join and, and how did you feel about potential risk for him? Because it, I think all entrepreneurs have shared that feeling of, okay, right. I can take the risk for myself. I know what my risks are. But once you start bringing people into the equation, you don't know if they're leveraging themselves or right. what their financial situation is. And, and they're, you know. He's a big boy. He can, you know, or whomever they are, they can take care of themselves. And really, it should be their decision. But I think for for certain people, I think you, myself, you know, we you feel a certain responsibility to those that you right. hire to be successful. We did, so and we, what did that feel like? What did that and what did that mean for for the business itself? So we talked a lot about it. And one of the trips down to Texas, Mike would just come help me if he like. We were coming down when we started working on Ed's case. And this and, is when he was still at the fire service. You had hired him yeah, at the so fire he, service. So I, I, I have to clarify that. He was a part-time firefighter, his full-time job. Um, he worked in a grocery store, and then he had taken a job. at. So, yeah, he was still in the fire service because he had taken a job. While we were traveling, he just came with me, took vacation, and just was helping me. And we were talking about, like, I'd, I'd love to be able to hire you to work full-time, and, and you could work with me. And he was like, I want to do it. Right then, he gets his job offer at a nuclear plant to be on the fire brigade there, which pays really well. Wow. Yeah. And 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 he was having a real internal struggle with that because that's a great job. It's awesome. But he he felt the potential to come work with me. And he thought he, he felt it was very rewarding, the work we did, too. And was he drawn to the editing and production no. aspect already? Okay. So this is just generally, no, again. Neither of us are trained in this field. Well, right. we, we've learned 
are, as we've gone. So, so for him, it sounds like as well, I mean, you can't speak for him, but right. you know, I'm assuming that, it, again, the passion is really around the cases, around- Around the work. Yeah. Mike, Mike is very much a, a man that, that wants to do meaningful work. He wa- he wants to feel like what he's doing makes a difference, and that's why he wanted to get away. I mean, he had a good, you know, he he doesn't like talking about it because he worked at a grocery store. But I mean, he had, at twenty seven years old, he worked. At, he was one of the the managers at the grocery store. He had a good job, but it wasn't fulfilling for him. Yeah, he's a millennial, probably. Uh, Millennials, he is. yeah. He doesn't act much like a millennial though. He's he, we've always said Mike has an old soul. He does. He's George McFly. I think he keeps you in line. He actually. does. He's always the adult in the room, but. <laughs> But that was, that was so. Anyway, the business model. I want I want to ramble and talk about Mike a lot. But ultimately, I said no. Go take that job. I just I can't promise you that I can do. So you did feel that you. level of responsibility of absolutely supporting him. So you kind of turned him away. Does he go take the job at the nuclear? He does. Plant? Uh, but it was a temporary job that ah. that he thought would lead into a full time job. Got and that's it. why he's like, I don't want to get. I don't want to miss an opportunity with you to for this temporary job. I told him do it. Because that's the safe way to go, and I and I and, the, and, and you'll I, be here. Yeah, and I'll be here. So then, about the time his temporary job is ending, I ha- I start getting approached. Now there's more dogs in the fight, right? So now here comes Audio Boom and Wondery, and there's other agencies selling advertisement out there. Mm-hmm. And so I get into a bit of a bidding war between two of the two of the different ad agencies mm-hmm. and it wasn't for, i mean the, the, the ads are going to sell for what they're going to sell for but it's a matter of how much of a percentage of commission you're you going to take uh could you get a guaranteed minimum and this is all new the business was new mm-hmm. it was it, it had been around for a little while but it was exploding new and i still wanted to i wanted to hire mike teach he done he was doing some editing he was editing off duty but um i wanted to teach him to edit that would free me up to do more work. And then as a business model, by doing that, we can add a second episode a week because I felt like we were losing the crowdsourcing piece yes. because it was becoming more narrative. There wasn't a feedback loop. Right. And so that brings back the feedback loop, but also from the business side added, uh, and listeners don't listen to this part, but <laughs> it added more ad space. Right. Right. So, it, so a lot more. And, yeah. And it doubled it. So that, that could now support Mike comfortably mm-hmm. if I had that. So it, it was, but it was one of those moves where it was like, I'm going to have to spend a bunch of money on a full, because if I was going to bring him full time, I mean, I pay Mike very well. He has a salary. He has insurance. You know, we, I, I, I wasn't going to ask him to leave that job for me to pay him pennies. I gave him right. a good job offer, but it's like, I, I can afford to do that with two episodes, still have money for travel. And then about that time, we're bringing Shane on too and start paying Shane for music. And so. did you have the idea for other shows that were under the NBI studios umbrella at this point? Yes, I did. It was, it was at that point when I decided it's time to incorporate um, New Beginning Incorporated. Because uh-huh. it was still, at that point, it was still Fire I don't know if you remember way back, you'd hear yeah. Fire Seminars production. Yeah. Because that was my company. And so. From when you were doing the, the fire trainings. Right. And so I just kept everything under that. And then I said, no, I need to incorporate uh, New Beginning Incorporated. I have some other, I have, I have some rental properties and stuff too. So we, and, and then Becky's Beach Body Business. So we kind of put it all under one umbrella of. Mm-hmm. Of New Beginning Incorporated, mm-hmm. which is NBI Studios, um, but yeah, it was it was just it it was a very I thought well thought out business plan. It worked, I guess, which was and you had a business plan, yeah, which a lot of podcasters don't even do. So I mean, that's right. that's impressive in and of itself. Yeah, and 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 it was basically if I spend you know with benefits and everything you know x amount of dollars on Mike, 
then the return on that investment is the second episode, which generates more revenue. Mm -hmm. It also frees up time. I can do a better investigation. We can, with the extra revenue, I can hire Shane to do the sound engineering and the scoring and up production, which should increase listenership because it's a better, you know, so, Mm -hmm. and so I, I, I took the risk and what had happened was in that bidding war with audio boom, I worked out a minimum guarantee, which I don't know if anybody else had ever done that at that point. I think there were a few out there, but they tried yeah. to keep it quiet back then because nobody was doing it. But and now it, it's kind of industry standard. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's industry standard. If you have anymore. a certain listenership. Yeah. But the the minimum guarantee for me was more less about the amount of money from the ads. About it was more about when you're going to pay me because mm. the the other downside of this business is you know you get paid you know forty five to ninety days after the the Episode. agency gets paid. Okay. And they don't get paid until 45 to 90 days after the episode, and the advertisers don't always pay on time. So, like, I got a check from Midroll a year and a half after I was not with Midroll anymore because Squarespace finally paid their bill from a year before. Mm. And so I I worked out a deal where I got a certain amount of money. Startups. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have a certain amount of money. Um deposited in our account on the 30th of every month. Mm. And it wasn't the full amount they would owe me, but basically I worked out, I need this much money to pay myself, to pay Becky, to pay Shane, to pay Mike, to pay our bills. That's the bare minimum I need. And our ad revenue was should always be more than that. But I need that much money on the 30th of every month so I can make payroll. Got it. And they agreed to do it. And that's when I went to Mike and I said, okay, now, and it was a two-year contract. I'm like, now I can offer you a job and tell you comfortably that I will be able to pay you this salary with these benefits for at least two years. And then, you know, unless everything goes to hell, this would this should only get better as we move forward. And he left his job at the fire brigade and became a full-time awesome podcaster. Story. Awesome story. So let's talk about, so you've talked about, about the monetization without getting it too specific into the kind of financial piece of it. Just kind of buttoning that up, you know, when did podcasting in terms of its financial model, because the industry, as you've mentioned a few times, has really changed in terms of its... Still changing. It's still changing. Mm -hmm. And you've made the decision to go with Wondery. Mm -hmm. And you warned us as listeners a while ago that we might may or may not hear ad breaks at particular points and good old Yoder has to kind of work right. with the editing as best we, he can. We got it down to a science now. Yeah, I, I haven't noticed. I never noticed an issue. But um, but talk a little bit about that. Was that a big decision to make? And, and what is the kind of industry like right now? Is it still lucrative to become a podcaster for my students that it might be considering it? It is. I mean, you can you can run a, a, I mean, a very successful business. I have several full-time employees and make a, a good profit and we're able to invest. Yes. The answer is yes. But it's a very, very difficult business to get into. Like you have to have – we're learning that. Like you with other shows that we've taken on mm-hmm. in, our, in our studio, like there's shows that I think are just absolutely fantastic. Shane's show, The Root Note, is amazing. And it's and, and we're still trying to figure out like what is the magic formula? Because – you know, because we're we, we 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 market it through us, and we let our we let my audience. If it's a show that I love, have him like I don't know, like reach out to Andy Cohen on Twitter and see if he can get John Mayer to come on the show right. or something, and like them collaborate on a song together. I feel like he just needs <laughs> a, music, a musician where they do it together. You got to find yeah. like that 
one thing that pops, but like but he's always he's you know he's always whining about his life. Like I feel like maybe if he expressed it through song together with Yoder, like safe space, <laughs> maybe as musicians he can like you know cry through the pain and right, move on. Right, right. I don't know, you know. There are those celebrities out there mm-hmm. that I feel like maybe there could be matches with, but but even that doesn't always translate. You know how many big time yeah. celebrities with multi million uh, social media followings make a podcast and it doesn't go anywhere. Usually terrible content. Right. And that, and that's it. So it's a matter of making great content that people just love to hear and then getting it out there. And like, like, we have the vehicle to put it out there. I can put it out there to a huge audience and then see if they like it. And then sometimes our audience doesn't like the things that I like. You know, I was really happy. Our, Our latest podcast we just brought on was disgruntled moms. And that was one, it was a friend of mine. I helped her put it together, like just kind of technical stuff when she was doing it. I was like, ah, no, another conversational podcast. I don't think that they're, you know, it's got to be something really special. And then my wife was listening to it, Becky, and she doesn't usually listen to podcasts. And she was snorting, laughing. (laughs) I'm like, okay, let let me listen to this now. And then I listen. I'm like, oh, my God, they're amazing. And so we brought them on. And and theirs really has has started to grow. Made Us also is – they're really starting to grow. Um, Zach Weaver is is growing, but but none of them have yet, you know, blown up. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I think that you you know, but they, I think once you can get a couple thousand people, which is a ton, mm-hmm. and if you put out really good content, really good content, I always feel like something with most of these social media mark um, inf- influencers or, or multimedia influencers. At some point, something happens that kind of goes viral that it, that is just it it blows up and. And when you do something amazing in front of two thousand people, and they tell all their friends, and then it right—that's what happened with with Truth and Justice. It just it went from six thousand to one hundred thousand like that quick. So, speaking of, that's kind of an interesting point because I was explaining to you how I explained you to my students because uh-huh. I surveyed them and they were able to. They I crowdsourced questions from them. They were all required to ask questions of uh-huh. you and learn about you. They watched your twenty twenty or the twenty twenty episode that you featured in uh-huh. that I felt like really showcased your work really nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think hopefully help change the narrative a bit on the Sandra Melgar case for those that watch terrestrial television right. as we know it, which thank God. Um, but, you know, your show is very much about a mission. And it's and we've talked about that. And it's about these cases, but there's there's truth is part of the title. And there's an authenticity that you have. I remember when I first saw you just now, the thing that I noticed about you that I don't see in pictures, because it, you just kind of doesn't translate, you have really sweet eyes. You look like a really honest guy. And I can see now why people might open up to you, but just, just because you just seem authentic. Very charming. Well, <laughs> let's not oversell it, but... You just seem like, you know, you would listen to me. You mm-hmm. just, you know, you really want to hear what someone has to say. So I can imagine, so for a crime victim or someone who'd witnessed something really awful in some of the interviews that you had to do even in the Sandra Melgar case, uh-huh. I could see now why people might open up to you. And the interviewer in me might have different things I'd ask in a different order, but you usually always get the information that I would have been seeking. Right. And I think that that, you know, you kind of are one of us. There's that, there's an authentic to what you do. So I guess that comes back to the kind of the, the crowdsourcing piece where part of you, it, you know, is a lone wolf out there, boots on the ground, as you talked about, as your model evolved, you're able to hire Mike, you've got Yoder doing the music and the mm-hmm. scoring and putting it all together beautifully so we can hear you and the levels are great. But 
we've all got questions, some of which you've answered at length. And then we saw in the West Memphis 3 case, the dynamic really changed because you had people, I feel like for maybe the first time that were truly dedicated to kind of hating you and and really felt right. like you weren't coming from an authentic place. So kind of talk about that where, you know, the word truth, you know, and that authenticity kind of you know, did you assume that you, I mean, do you, did you kind of take that for granted that people, or had you felt that maybe people maybe thought you were coming from a different place? I always thought that one of the things that made the show successful was that I was very genuine, you know, especially go back to those early seasons and you hear, I mean, I didn't hide my emotions at all. If I was pissed, you knew I was pissed. If I was sad, you heard me being sad. And, and I've just always felt that in general in life, just, be yourself. Don't ever be, don't ever try to be somebody you're not because eventually you're going to be found out. You know, I don't ever want somebody to find out that Bob Ruff's not the guy Bob Ruff's been saying that he is all this time. Yeah, you can't uh, hang out with Jim Clemente and Jim Fitzpatrick and be hiding. Right. Yeah. They'll, yeah, they'll they're, figure they're, you they're out. They're going to figure it out. Figure yeah. It out and, and my girl, Laura Richards, I don't know how much you get to hang out with her, but she's the same way. Yeah. They all, they all, I would imagine that they all just would be able to figure you out I really confess quickly. to everything I've ever done in my life every time I walk into a room with any of them. And Lisa Z's getting pretty good, too. <laughs> yeah, she is. Yeah. <laughs> so, so talk about the difference in crowdsourcing as you've gone from season to season. I felt like the biggest demarcation, the difference in the assumed authenticity and truth behind what you're doing and the mission behind the values. We talk a lot in, in business you know, marketing about the company's mission statement, its values, its objectives mm-hmm. really inform everything we do. So if the values are really first about, you know, getting the wrongfully convicted, you know, ideally exonerated and finding the true criminal and getting them convicted and or held responsible in some way for someone's death, what does it feel like when the tables maybe turn and and your true intention, which is you know, as I just stated, is just to get to the truth of things right. is maybe assumed not to be the case that you're maybe trying to play right. on emotions or in a camp or that whole thing is is kind of new within the last year. It's not that new. It's what's happened is it snowballed, but it, it that was, and that's what I was starting to say was that was I I've always wanted to be genuine. I've always been genuine. People mm-hmm. may not like me, but that's me. And you know, Anand Syed's case, season one was very very popular. And it, it generated a lot of – very controversial. And I found the people that disagreed with me then – I mean, that's pretty horrible. So if you read some of my iTunes reviews or, or for God's sake, don't go on Reddit. You'll see, uh, you know, there are old subreddits for me. But it's just a lot of hate. And that's why – and, and it, it, it was rough for a while for me. I was like, I've never had anybody – I've had people say a lot of bad things about me. But, like, never say a bunch of untrue bad things about me. I've got plenty yeah. of bad stuff that's – and it was – like, why are they saying that? I'm not doing that. That's not what I'm doing. That's not why I'm doing this. And then with season two, it kind of went away because nobody ever heard of Kenny Snow or Ed Eights. That that really just brightened everything because everybody – there's still the occasional hater out there. But I was getting better at ignoring them. Uh, and the same thing with season three. And then – but the, then the problem is at this point now I'm getting more popular and there and there's more people listening. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, when we did the, the West Memphis 3 case – was so it, it kind of it snowballed. So you still had the haters from the Anand Syed case. You picked up a few more that were really rollovers from that one in season two and three. And then when we got into through George Powell, and then when we got into the West Memphis three. Now that was a whole new ball game because there were people rooted in that case, uh, a controversial case for twenty five years. 
So it wasn't like, you know, 10 months, 25 years. And these, to be fair, I mean, you know, being in different groups and kind of experiencing and kind of wading in, I mean, these are people that I think you were very, I thought that you tried to come from a place of really acknowledging that these were smart people, wherever, whatever walk of life they came from, they they were investigating just like you were. They were coming to maybe different conclusions that you were right. coming to, but you weren't maybe trying to disrespect them, but, but some people were taking it that way, maybe. Right. And, and you know, the thing that honestly bothered me is you said it in that the thing that bothered me the most is not that they don't like the podcast or they don't like me or they disagree with me, but it, it's, it is hard when people question your intentions, you know, because I know, I guess the only person that really knows is me. And and my wife, who probably Becky, me. yeah, yeah, and 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 Mike. I mean, people that are 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 the people that are closest to me. You know, they see me cry over a phone call and and how um, angry I throw things off my desk when when very real things are happening with the case. Like I just care about the case, and so when people are are questioning that and claiming that you know that's that's not my intention, that I'm whatever. It's it it, it is difficult, but. You just have to, and and I have a very small um, audience compared to like other social media influencers out there. But for me, it's enough that I have to learn to just say, just shut it off and just mm-hmm. not worry about it. And part of that might be your approach to Instagram, which has been very personal. Right. But not in a way that showcases you necessarily. It's kind of you as a family man, maybe, if mm-hmm. that's that a right way of kind of... I like the fact that I have, I use it as an outlet to let people have a little look into my life just to be me mm-hmm. to not be bob Ruff the podcaster well i shouldn't say that what to be me who who is very multidimensional so on my instagram i just i just before we did this put up you know here mm-hmm. i'm going to record an interview for the podcast but that's just part of me and then i also have my kids birthdays and me goofing around with my wife or you know whatever it is so that yeah that that's that's my space where um anybody that comes onto my instagram feed sees this is just bob Right. This is not the truth and justice page. It's just it's just me being me. Any difference in maybe how much you shelter your life or anything since 2020 or the West Memphis 3 case? Or has there been any moment where you felt like, I mean, I think one of the benefits is you don't live in LA where we are right, right. now. So, you know, I've had the experience, unfortunately, in the early days of Twitter of, of having a stalking incident when I used to do a lot of marketing lecturing. Mm-hmm. And so that cured me really quickly of feeling like I needed to share where I was and what I was doing all right. of the time. So, you know, probably to my disadvantage, I don't worry about numbers and kind of like them to stay small. Uh-huh. Um, but for you, it's a little different. I see you sharing a lot of just what you described, your family interaction, your son's birthday, that uh-huh. sort of thing. Do you ever get concerned that you're sharing too much of your personal life and that you could become a target at some point? I think it's easy to become a target without doing that anyway, because everybody knows, everybody already knows where, not my house, but people, I mean, you could find, anybody could find my house, just like, I, you know. Yeah, I know. There's ways, there's ways to do it. But I am very, I am more calculated than I seem as far as what I share. So I'll share when we're out, you know, at a local bar and we're having fun, but I live in a town of 2,000 people. Right. So, like, anybody that wants to stalk me from, you know, they're going to have to get on a plane. I'm going to be gone by the time they got there. Right. When I'm in L.A. or I'm in in New York or or the bigger cities, 
I don't do that so much because mm-hmm. you know th- there are it's a sheer volume thing. There could be people very close by that can. And not that I'm, I've never, I've never had an issue, a stalking issue or anybody that I'm, I'm necessarily worried about. But sometimes it's just like, I don't want to, and this sounds like a Hollywood douchebag thing to say, but, um, it just, I only say it because it has happened a couple of times where I'll like put something out and then some listener who I love to meet listeners and hang out with them, but then will like come up and, Talk to me. And please, if you see me somewhere, come up, say hi, talk to me. We'll take a picture. But be careful with your expectations because we don't know what Bob's in the middle of, right? Right. Well, and, and it's, and, mo- and most people are very good at like taking a social cue because I love meeting people. I love, I feel like a rock star for a minute and take a picture. Mm. And, and, and sometimes I'll, if I'm not doing anything, I'll sit and talk to them and hang out and have a drink with them, whatever. But there's other times where I'm like trying to do something with my family. I'm like, okay, it's great to meet you, take the picture. And they just, it just but turns little out, Parker's not going to understand. Daddy is got right. this other level of right something going and on, and that's super rare. But it's happened, and it's and it's so anyway. When I, if I'm in a spot with my family where I don't want something like that to happen, then I don't want to necessarily say where I'm at. But for the most part, that whole that whole segment really sounded very very uh, douchey. But that's just the reality of it. There are certain times. Mike will make sure to highlight it. Yes, and make sure we put it out. I mean, I don't want. It, <laughs> he's going to ask me, Mike. You don't need to cut it. Put it out there. This is a real raw thing, right? But, um, but yeah, it's just it's just one of those things that every once in a while happens that I don't want to. Um, anyway, ask your next question. <laughs> well, my students were very impressed with you and you know your social media profile. One of the things that they really wanted to know about was obviously they're very deeply entrenched and. I mean, they're learning a lot about douchebags too. I mean, they're they're right. part of their uh, required viewing this term for those that are uh, listeners to the Truth and Justice podcast is they watch the Dueling Fire Festival documentaries on Netflix and Hulu and had mm-hmm. to do a compare and contrast American meme. Um, there's been some interesting scandal stories between Billy McFarlane from Firefest and a very well-known faux socialite scammer in New York City mm-hmm. who was staying in a place in New York for a while. So it was, I think, a natural question that one of my students wanted to know, how do you sort out the tips? For them, their thought would be, wow, there would be a lot of hoaxes that could come through. How do you, do you get too much information to vet or what's the vetting process like? What's the volume like of, of information that you have to sort through? And and kind of what sources are you having to use to sort through? Because I'm sure there's lots that come through email. You've got Facebook. You We talked about Instagram a little right. bit. And you have, you know, there's other channels out there. Maybe talk a little bit about those channels and the volume that you're dealing with. And have you ever had a hoax that you got drawn into a little bit? Never one that I got drawn into. We'll get tips that come in sometimes. Um, you, and this is not an invitation for anybody to create a hoax, please. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, we sniff them out pretty good because we're just very careful and thorough with try to be with anything that comes in. So, and, and it's about to. We're about to officially launch the reward. All the money's been put into the account, the uh, from the GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're about to officially launch the you know, like with the media blitz, the twenty thousand dollar reward for Jim just to, to find Jim Elgar's killer. Mm-hmm. Is exactly what it's for, and we're about to 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 release that, launch it, and 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 market that, and that I think is going to bring in probably the m- biggest influx of actual tips on the case. Other than the, I noticed this in a crime scene photo or this, which is which is what got us to this point, mm-hmm. is everyone doing that, and that's what we deal with a lot of, and it, it gets the listeners all flesh it out. Sometimes people will post something on the Facebook page and say like, "Hey, I noticed this, and I think." whatever fill in the blank that I found from the documents of the crime scene photos. And 
I'll just wait instead of jumping in and just waiting. And then the other listeners come in and, you know, the engineers come in and the social workers come in and the, everybody starts weighing in and they, I just watch them sort it Mm. until it gets down to something where it's like, okay, this is either legit or not. And this is something I need to look into and then move on from there. Do you feel like most of that is happening on Facebook kind of in real time with people talking to one another? That's ex- yeah, that's exactly what it is. Is it most most of the internet the the fan page, which is not my page, um, but that has really become the kind of the hub for discussion on the case, and that stuff happens all. And I guess people don't realize that I, I'm. I, of course, I don't. Re- there's forty thousand comments a month on that page, so I don't see them all. But I try to keep up, especially if somebody tags me. But um, you're then, excellent. If someone tags you, I can't believe how quickly you get back to people. You uh, really do sometimes, but then sometimes I won't. I'll, I won't at all. So I try to be. Uh, pretty active with that. But um, the admins are really good about, you know, telling me like, hey, Bob, somebody's talking about this. You might want to take a look at this and then I'll move over or Michael tell me or whatever. But I really like watching the expertise of all the listeners sort through these things in a thread. Um, and then then I take it from there and fully in- investigate it. So when it comes to crowdsourcing, talk about any pivotal moments that occurred, you know, in an investigation where because I, I feel like I can think of a couple where you had aha moments because of what, you know, different people put together or with it, particular listeners, one we mentioned earlier, I feel like put together that kind of blew your mind or helped you sort something out or visual put something in visual terms that helped you with a case. Can you can you talk about a few like sort of landmark moments where the the crowdsourcing component really made a difference in some way? Yeah, the most recent one we just had was with the uh, the TV situation um, in the Melgar case. And it was, you know, it had been talked about and talked about, and there's this TV here and this TV. So there was, for your students, uh, there was possibly a TV stolen, possibly not. There's a TV in an office that we have a kind of a angled picture from. Um, and someone had brought it up to me, and I thought, I was like, well, I, I can look at this and see – we can do what I used to do when I did construction, right? If I needed to know how much dry, I could, I could count. I knew ceiling tiles were two feet and you could use markers like that to measure. So anyway, I, I, on the Facebook page, I, I tagged in, uh, what we were just talking about, Don McElhaney, uh, and a couple other listeners that, that are pretty good with engineering and kind of photogrammetry and said, can you tell us exactly the dimensions of this based on what's in the room? They were able to do that. Other listeners were then tracking down the model number from a TV that was on a receipt when we found those, they found those dimensions and then everybody put it together and we were able, a question has been sitting out there for six years, find out definitively. And that's all we're looking for is truth, right? To answer our question. Okay. The TV from that receipt was not one that was stolen. The TV from that receipt we can officially confirm is the TV that was in the office, all done through listener work. And probably Liz Rose should be mentioned here too. So is the daughter of both the convicted and the victim in the case. Mm-hmm. So that that's an interesting component too. How do you gain the trust of someone like Liz Rose? Uh, I I don't I I think it uh, goes back to a lot of what you talked about before. I just I'm just genuine. I'm real with them when I talk to you know when I reach out to family members or they reach out to me. I'm very uh, and she would tell you when we first connect, just like anybody any other family member or or defendant um, that I talk to. At the very beginning, I'm very blunt. I'm very direct up front this is the way it's going to be i'm going to you know i always have that as i talked with ali on um sunday's episode mm-hmm. allison know. sweeney yeah um 
if the fantastic soap actress that I wish I could be. She's amazing. (laughs) She is. She is is an awesome human in general. Yes, and she's got this this like beautiful but scary blue eyes. Mm -hmm. They only look scary because of Sammy's character. I'm told. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Um, and I I think that's it. I mean, people are going to like you or they're not, but I think that most people that meet me and don't have some agenda or whatever realize that I'm I'm at least I'm not a liar. I'm I'm very straightforward and honest and I make very clear what I'm doing and that's part of how I I decide if I'm going to take a case too when I tell them look I'm reporting the truth I'm not your spin machine mm-hmm. I'm not your defense I'm going to so if there's something you don't want out there then I'm not your guy because everything's going out there when I do the case and when somebody's like great that's all I want then that's that's usually the case that we're going to go ahead and take so you use social media to crowdsource the investigation. So people are talking about the investigation. They're sharing tips and theories. Are you ever using social media to grow your podcast audience? No. No, I'm the worst businessman when you it comes to that. You laugh at this, but I know, it's important. I'm not laughing because it's not important. I'm laughing because so, I'm bad at it. But but what about with the other shows? So you've got NBI Studios. So mm-hmm. it, you, as you mentioned, you've got other podcasts. And you do put together business plans. It sounds like you have a really good business head. So... Where does social media fit in for just as a business, the in, the entire business? Because your your wife is also really good at social media. She's she is much a, better. I'm at in it a than group me. that she runs. Mm-hmm. So you know the beach body business and and her sort of fitness right. lifestyle stuff. That's amazing. So we're, how does social media fit in as a promotion vehicle? You say you're bad at it, but but there's I'm other bad people because I, I don't do it, and I should do it, and I've been told a million, and I know that I should do it. It's just a matter of. A lot about time and a, and a little bit about technical. No, I mean, I can pretty much figure out anything I need to, um, to do it. Do you feel it. like you have the most fame of all that are in your circle to be able to drive it? Is that part of that? I'm really bad at it because maybe you have the most recognized name of the, I mean, your wife has a recognized name too in right. her world. But, you know, when we talk about sort of breaking into the macro influencer world, you're pretty mm-hmm. close, actually. Your numbers are trending to be, you know, I mean, if you tried it all, right. <laughs> you could be a macro influencer slash celebrity. But I think that you do have this sort of dance. I almost wonder if it's like a subconscious, I don't really need to be famous or I don't want to be famous in a way. And that's what's more driving it because you do have the technical know-how. Do you ever think yeah. about that? No, I, I mean, I don't. No, not, never. I mean, it's not that. It's not that I've ever thought I don't want to be famous, but I've never thought I want to be famous either. I just, you know, obviously it's... Did you know some of my students thought that you were famous after I add them look at your profile? Well, I don't think they know what the word famous means. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's Insta-famous. Right. But like we talked about earlier, there's micro and macro, right? So I I am famous in... And there's nano. There's mega. So I don't even know what all this means. Right. But, But... as I always describe it, it's like because every once in a while we'll go somewhere and someone will recognize me and talk to me. And and my kids will usually they think it's cool or whatever. Um, and I do too. Like I said, it makes you feel like a rock star when you're when you're me who 90% of the 99% of the time doesn't get recognized by anyone. Nobody knows who the hell I am. So when that happens, it's cool when that happens. Um, but then we'll go into like Crime Con or s- somewhere like that. And it's just this mass flooding, like can't get to the bathroom because there's a people after person after person after person. And it's like, so in my space, in true crime podcasts, I could say I'm famous there. But in the bigger picture, not so much. 
Um, but but really what I was saying when I said I'm not good at it is like I do have the technical know-how, but I've always used social media as the case discussion. I've used social media to, you know, announce when episodes are out, really giving people a place to discuss them. Um, I've started doing a little bit more sound card and stuff like that, but I've never I've never consistently used it as a promotional vehicle. And everyone I talk to that's in that industry is like, you need to be doing this and this and this and this. And I'm like, I know, but I don't have time to do all that. And I don't, I, I just, I, I, I tend to feel like most people don't really want to know that much about me or what I'm doing. I don't know. It's a weird thing for me. Well, I think the thing is, I think from my perspective as a marketing professor and strategist, I think early on, like when I first started listening or I don't know, at some point, I think I left you guys a voicemail with this long rambling question, which of course I got cut off on Google voice, which was very embarrassing. <laughs> and, um, I, I think I said, Hey, I'll do a strategy for you guys. When you started doing the Patreon, I think is when you were asking that I was like, you guys should have a strategy because the thing is the millennials are on Insta uh-huh. or they're on Snapchat. So if you're using that for personal, you're not going to grow the conversation that you might grow you know what I mean? Like uh-huh. Facebook seems like a logical place, but it trends older. Right. A lot of a lot of my students don't even my young students they don't my kids have don't use Facebook. They don't have Facebook accounts, right? So, so that's the only thing is, do you ever feel like so? If you know your ki- kids don't have Facebook accounts and they're Gen Y or no, they're probably Gen Z, early Gen mm-hmm. Z. So they they don't even have those accounts. Do you ever worry that you're maybe missing some of the younger audience, or do you think about demographics at all? Because advertisers certainly do, and you you right. have talked about the business part of this. Yeah, and my demographics have been from the whether my numbers were six thousand or two hundred fifty thousand have consistently been about seventy five percent female between the ages of thirty five and forty five. So they're all right in that true crime genre. Of- At first, I thought it was because I'm so devilishly handsome that all these women are. <laughs> and then I found out that that's pretty much true crime. That's pretty much the the demographic for most true crime. But don't have a lot of very young listeners. Um, I think they do podcasts, but they don't do this kind of podcast. Um, older so much, but really that that and and men and women, but in that range from. You know, I would say, you know, the, the, a huge portion of our audience is always going to be in the upper twenties to fifties. Right. Is where it's going to be at. So I'm not, I don't, I don't know how many, no matter how much marketing I do, how many 18 year olds. But you've are never done marketing, it sounds like. Ever. Mm. Right. Every, every once in a while, I'll run a Facebook ad for a certain episode or something that I want. And you might – it sounds like you're going to do that. That's baked into the plan for the reward in the Melgar case. Right. Absolutely. So – because that's an important – it really impo- – the case, again, drives the conversation. The case right. is driving kind of the business in a way. Right. So it's kind of interesting because – so I'll come back to where kind of where we started in a way. I'm a Patreon subscriber. Mm-hmm. Where does Patreon fit in terms of business model? Because it's all about content. Right, and you're you've you doubled the content. You talked about how important that was in deciding to actually kind of formalize and incorporate by doubling your output of content. Mm-hmm. You were able to bring on Mike, beautiful, mm-hmm. handsome Mike, pretty Mike, um, <laughs> pretty Mike. <laughs> uh, bring bring him on full time. Bring on Shane Yoder. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about where Patreon fits in in all of this? Patreon is just it is a it was kind of a stopgap when I was bringing Mike on or doing more traveling. And, you know, really when I was bringing Mike on, it's like, okay, we're getting pretty maxed out. Like we're comfortable. We're, you know, we, we don't, the, the, the business doesn't have any debt. So we're in good shape there, but we're not turning much of a profit right then. 
it's going to take months before we start seeing the effects of that other episode. Right. Um, and I was constantly being told you should have a Patreon. You should have a Patreon. So I just originally I just put it out there. It was like, here's a Patreon. There, there was no reward levels, anything like that. Yeah, I for for the longest time listened and mm-hmm. didn't know you had a Patreon. Right. Well, I probably didn't then, because uh, there was like one episode. Where I'm like, hey, we got a Patreon page now. If you guys want to donate to help. <laughs> Or, or or maybe I didn't know what it was until I watched my first nerd writer video or right, something like right, that yeah. on YouTube. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. I have to know what this is. And, and then we got more into it, and I was like, man, I we should do something for. So then, then we started doing the reward levels, right? So there was if we do videos of all of our Friday follow ups that are uncut and behind the scenes are usually kind of funny, um, just because Mike and I are goofing around a lot. And Mike's trying to sneak out a camera shot, right? Always. Um, but so, so if anybody we notice the hats, Mike, we notice the hats sneaks it down. Yeah, he does. But yeah, so we made, we made reward levels where, you know, if you donate, if you're in the five dollar reward level, you get to watch those videos. If you're in, I think it's, I don't know what they are, $15, you get a truth and justice army t-shirt. And it's like, and, I, and I've been terrible. Cause I don't think I ever gave you guys my address to send. I still don't have a hat t-shirt or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At one point you talked about flying out to do this. Yes, I was more than happy because I'd love to meet your wife too. But then this all worked out great. Cause I'm, you know, traversing right the state at well, all and times. When you were going to come. Co- co- going to fly out was right mm-hmm. when ed was getting released i I'm know like, i'm not going to be i know here. you talked about the follow-up last week mm-hmm. or the week before i don't know yeah I, fe- I felt like ooh, maybe he's talking about me yeah that was so weird that i just happened to mention it before this all played out uh but yeah so we we, we added some so here's some reward here's the problem though there are and, and so it's awesome so we you know we that extra money helped us pay for insurance for for mike and and for a lot of the travel and so it's just it's it's just this little bit extra that we can put into paying the bills to just right. keep us, uh, and we just keep constantly, you know, just this week we just spent before uh, for this trip a couple thousand dollars on equipment just to be able to have good sound while I'm traveling because I have to travel a lot. And right thank now. you for that because it really it really does make a difference to the listener. Yeah, and we we try to put the but so there's always these opportunities for other podcasts, and when we have people approach us all the time, just a couple weeks ago, uh, to put the podcast behind a paywall or put extra bonus content behind mm, a paywall. Yeah. Or put extra bonus content in Patreon. That's why we ended up with the videos because, for me, in good conscience, I could make a lot more money doing that. But this show, the purpose, the mission of this show is to help people, and the whole idea is that everyone contributes. So I will never hide content mm-hmm. from my audience. You are an influencer because you will not market. That is, it's like the opposite of marketing. I don't know what that means, but it sounds awesome. It is. Okay. It mean, yeah, it's like awesome sauce because yeah. there's just special magic to people that can afford to do that. And it's incredibly rare when it happens. I, I mean, I mean, I'll be honest, I would love to be able to do it, but it's just, I, I can't in good conscience do it. And that's why instead of doing to... other episodes, we ended up with the video because it's the same content. Yeah. But it's just a little The more sarcastic fun. and yeah. visual responses to each other. So, so, um, just final questions here. So, any podcasts inspiring you these days? I mean, I would imagine you don't have a lot of time to listen, but I would imagine people talk to you about podcasts. Any that right. you've heard of that you want to check out, check out, or that you have kind of caught a glimpse of that you think have a particular interesting kind of quality to them? I mean, Mike's editing podcasts. It sounds like outside of even right. the NBI studio. So maybe mm-hmm. you're hearing. You talked about the the Moms podcast earlier. Right. I was wondering if there are any others outside the umbrella that maybe you're. On your list? Or? I, I really don't have a lot of time to listen to. Like, I have in my queue all these podcasts that I just haven't. Are they all true crime? No. Well, I mean, most of them are, but 
but you know the, the disgruntled moms is one that I don't ever miss now. Mm. Uh, the root note, I try never to miss that one. Um, and I still listen to Jimmy Pardo's Never Not Funny is one of my absolute favorites. I'm even a VIP subscriber, so I get the uh-huh. videos. That's yeah. why I got the idea for the video because yeah. I I pay to have his video. So for me, anything that's inspiring is I, I'm listening to um, kind of production styles and what works and what makes a podcast good. Um, and then I'm also from the business model, you know, looking at like I would love to be able to come out with I think a second show on another feed that's not the same as ours. That because um, one thing I see is our struggle is our show is so long form mm. um, that it's hard to get new listeners. And when 2020 came out, that episode, our monthly downloads that month went up by almost a million mm-hmm. increase in that month. But our current episode download numbers went up by like five or six thousand because we have three hundred and fifty episodes. So people start, and for the advertisers, it really only matters to them what you're getting for downloads on those new episodes. Right. Uh, but you got shows like True Crime Garage and Generation Y, Real Crime Profile that are they're short form. Every episode, for the most love part, Real Crime Profile. Yeah, I do too. I love all of them. Jim Clemente, um, I have such a crush on you. It's bad. I mean, he lives just down the road. You know. Well, it's not like I'm going to walk over go, there. You, you I'm not. Him? Yeah, no, I'm definitely not <laughs> yeah, a stalker, especially yeah. not with a criminal profiler. Right. Um, <laughs> no better than to do that. But, you know, I think for, for them, it's it, it's easier to really expand that audience because you can look at, oh, here's a case I want to listen to. And you pop in, listen to this one. and mm-hmm. you can, they're, they're one-offs and sometimes two or three in a series. What about you? you t- you've talked a little bit about you and Becky, the Netflix and chill. I mean, are, is there anything that you're watching that's in your queue visually even? I mean, I think about like the staircase, you know, the mm-hmm. making a murder part two. A lot, a lot of things have come out recently. I mean, you've got interesting intersections even that have happened with Kathleen Zellner's joining right. the Sandra Melgar case, who was featured prominently in the making a murder part two. Yeah, and, and then in that um, series, we we definitely binged through sure. that, and that's the that's the first I've really seen much from Kathleen Zellner. I, mm-hmm. I knew who she was. Um, I was really impressed. I was not impressed with making a murderer too. I thought it was way, it was about six hours too long. But the parts with Zellner and some of the experts she had uh, were very compelling. And it really made me question again my original kind of opinion just based on TV, uh, whether Stephen Avery is guilty or innocent. After season one, when everybody else thought he was innocent, I was like, no, I think that the cops cheated, but he did it. And then after... It's Season. interesting that you came to that conclusion. But but again, like the, I'm not well researched in the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, I'm not either. So I just I think it's you know as a, a fellow listener, that's an interesting conclusion. It seemed to me that the documentarians in that show really, um, obviously, were very swayed, one sided, mm. and and intentionally kind of misled on some things. Um, but there were definitely some things that the police did wrong. But I still think there was a lot of evidence yeah. that looked like it was probably him. I but- felt like the second one pointed out a lot of things that you would have said about the first one that I felt were missing. The right. concentric circles. Where were the concentric circles around the? We just right. didn't hear about them. But I mean, right. now in the second one, I felt like they were kind of trying to make up for it. Why did the boyfriend have right or the, the maybe ex boyfriend? The- yeah, I mean, it just seems strange. I'm not entirely sure. Like you know, Zellner. I thought it was really interesting to watch her investigative techniques, but I don't know if uh-huh. you had any issues with like when the sink was taken out, there were no gloves. What I mean, I well, the, and then the, part test- of the problem that I had with it, with the, not her, with the production was the fact that they made it 10 hours and never recapped at the end of it. So by the time I was done, I was like, oh man, there was some really compelling stuff. Like back, I don't remember what it was, 
but yeah. there were, and there know, were a lot of graphics in that series too. So they could have done some graphics that helped kind of pull it together a little bit. Yeah, more. and there there was just so much filler to me, um, just from a production standpoint, that it was like. I would love to remember like what exactly they said about yeah. that DNA, but I'm not going to sort back through all this to find it. But, so, but anyway, I promise I'm not going to keep you up all night, but I did want to ask you about, you know, you, you get involved in the lives of people like Ed Eights and I know it can feel like you don't want to promise them too much. And I, I think you do such a great job with that struggle. What did you feel about the ethics around S town where you have someone who, I don't know if you heard Brian Reed's podcast and, you know, so after somebody passes away, they decide to do a very listened to podcast. Of course, he didn't know that when it came out, but it was right. from the producers of Serial and maybe revealed things about him that none of us can know. And, and Brian Reed, from what I've seen in interviews, has, has said, you know, I, you know, he's kind of using journalistic standards that as someone who went to Columbia Journalism School feel a little ethically un clear about or uneasy about at the very least did, did you have any kind of feelings about that or would you you know if it had been a show that you were doing would you have done it differently i, I mean yeah i i probably would have done it differently the, I, just in general the way that i work i would have done it differently not not even crossing ethical standards but you know for him to just kind of go take a whole year to build this yeah. story i just I, I i would love to do that but i i can't do that um, I thought the show was well done. There were definitely parts I'm trying. It's been a while since I listened to it, but but I mean the key. The when key I found was, out about the, yeah. at the at the end, you know that that he's gone. I was like, man, did he give you? And I don't know, but like, did he give you permission to share all that stuff about him? And, so about him potentially being gay and right. having affairs. That, according to Brian Reed, the host was never. You know, it was never a spoken. Yes, you can give permission. Yes, you have permission. He figured that out after he was gone, or so some of it he was finding out as he went. But it sounded, from what I recall, and I'm trying to remember from memory here on the spot. But you know, the thing that I had the issue, the biggest issue with was the, the. I think he did at least two interviews with someone who claimed to have been his longtime lover or partner or Uh something like that, and and I felt like. Um, it's one thing to say that the man, that he could have had a certain ser- sexual orientation right. and, you know, Hey, be what you want to be. I'm all, f- you know, be, be your best self. That's, it's not about me necessarily judging him, but, but it was very clear. The man invited him to, to come to this town, calling it a shit town based right. on the perceptions of the community about him, about people like him, about feeling like an outsider and how much of what it meant to be an outsider was really he died before a lot of that could be defined it's it seems sure but has there ever been something that you've decided not to air because it's felt unethical i mean i one thing i think yeah. about is redacting uh, some of the imagery in the jamie melgar crime scene photos you know you were very you you were very clear that the, the you were doing you know some um redaction mm-hmm. you know of the visuals there there's a lot of things that I'll decide not to air. I mean, I didn't go to journalism school. So for me, the line a lot of times is is just my own mm-hmm. morals or ethics. And it's constantly being debated. There, I mean, my best journalism school was my first job in a local newsroom way before I went to journalism school. So right. I don't say that like I'm sitting in an ivory tower knowing what right, but is it, right and wrong. But but, but it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing discussion. And it's an, an ongoing learning curve for yeah, me. But there's, there's, there's times where I just just didn't feel it was right where where by journalistic standards legally i had every right to 
use something and I've decided not to use it, um, I'll always read it. I will never show. And um, that's been hotly debated, not too hotly debated uh, several times, but I will never show you on any my website, at least not on purpose, the the body of a deceased victim, because that's that's their dignity. And they're not here to protect themselves. They can't tell me it's okay for you to show this or it will help with, you know, even Liz and I, Liz, Liz and I went back and forth because she thought that the audience needed to see some of the unredacted photos. And she felt like they needed to see how brutal this was. And, and I understood what she said. And it was, you know, that's her dad. And so that was a, that was a tough conversation. But ultimately I, you know, I told her, I was like, you can post what you want to post, but I will not do it. I, I will not. I, I don't think that. I just, I, for me, I, it doesn't matter what I think that, but you know, for me, I feel like I don't think that Jim would have been okay with that being put on display nude like that. At the same time, I absolutely understand, understood what Liz wanted to do. And of course, she still wanted to make some redactions and, and the reason why she wanted to do it. And she's not wrong at all. But, um, I just, for me, I just, I just can't do it. I can't in good conscience. And so it was the same thing with Elnora Griffin and Gail Gove and, 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 and Heyman Lee that where we've had the crime scene photos. I just feel like that's, I'm not going to cross that line. And I mean, you know, the West Memphis three case is such a great example because, and I remember the RCP team reviewing the, the three documentaries. Right. And the very first shot is the three little boys and. Right. You know they're gone, and it's fully exposed. Fully exposed. It's 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 so hard to watch. And Laura Richards, in particular, gives amazing commentary about what that did for her. And I mean, she and Jim Clemente and and Lisa Z now too. You know, are, are at this point are, are pretty seasoned. But when you started doing this case, I went back and I listened. Right. I watched, and I was just struck by that. And so I thought that was a really that was an integrity move. So again, going back to. For my students, the authenticity, I think that that goes straight to the heart of what makes people love you and stay loyal to you, which is, which is amazing. Awesome. Thank you very much for spending the time. Well, and thank you for hosting this week's Friday follow-up. And thank you to your students for sending you here and asking the questions. We really appreciate your Patreon uh, donations and for all the help you've given us. And I'm glad that we were able to help each other. So yes, I have my episode and you have your interview for your students. A win-win. Win-win. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Friday follow-up. We hope you tune in Sunday for what's going to be a fantastic episode. About, it's going to be about James Doucet. Can't wait to hear it. We'll see you guys on Sunday. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. 
Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. All right, Mike, here's the deal. I've had three glasses of whiskey. I'm about to read a pill commercial. You let me know what you think. Did you know that dudes not being able to get a is more common than you think? Like 25% of non dudes are under 40. And 40% of it... <laughs> Just kidding. I'm not going to do that to you. Just giving you a little chuckle, Mike. You know, while I'm not here. I miss you, Mike. You ready to get serious? <clears throat> One second. <laughs> oh, God, here we go. <clears throat> and did you know that Hims has a badass sister called For Hers? <laughs>